Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hi there. You're listening to Light Hustler. It's a podcast about addiction, recovery, sharing your dark to find your light. And I have a, oh, I'm your host, Anna David. I'm, I'm someone who shares her dark to find her light. And my company, Light Hustler, helps writers do exactly that through writing books, essays, articles, starting podcasts, all of those things. So today we have a real Light Hustler on the show. It is somebody who I interviewed over Facebook Live, so the usual caveat, caveat, caveat. They both sound weird to me today. Um, Anyway, the sound is not perfect, but you know what I love about you guys? Not only everything, but except like the three of you that have written mean reviews. I I, I don't like you. I mean, I do in the Buddhist sense find love for you, but... um, but but I really love, 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 love the rest of you without any complicated feelings around that. But anyway, I love that nobody complains about the sound on these Facebook Live interviews. I used to get so many complaints about sound. Now I get none. So, um, and nobody's even going to complain about the fact that an email just came in and beeped. So here's what I want to tell you. This guest is amazing. And in this interview, we talk about What happens when you're a writer and then you have a story go viral and you get the book deal and your life, your lifelong dream happens? We are getting this from Christy Coulter. She is the author of the book. Uh, It's an essay collection called Nothing Good Can Come From This. And I interviewed her about that. We talked about um, her writing career. She's written for the Paris Review, Glamour, Vox, a whole bunch of other places. And the story that went viral is one that just went on to medium.com, which I highly recommend posting on. Here's the really exciting thing. I know I've given you a ton of exciting news, but here's the even more exciting news. This is a contest episode. Yes, you can be one of three lucky winners to receive a copy of Christie's book, which is fantastic. So share this episode on Twitter. Uh, and when I say episode, just share the link to uh, iTunes, wherever you downloaded this. Oh, you know what? Oh my God. I'm I'm a disorganized person, but I think I have a really easy link for you. I think I might have the link uh, lighthustler.com slash podcast, but we'll see because I think that that just redirects to, um, sorry, it doesn't redirect. I don't know. Anyway, just share this episode or the link on Twitter with the hashtag nothing 
good can come from this. Got that? Share on Twitter this episode or just that you listen to Christy Coulter on this episode with the hashtag Nothing Good Can Come From This. That is the name of her book. But you have to tag at MCD Books to enter. Okay, that's her publisher. Now, let's say you're driving or running and this is too much information for you. Just tag me at Anna B. David, and then I will tag the publisher. So yeah, win a copy of her book. You want this book. Anyway, enough from me. Let's get into Christy Coulter. You have to stop talking for one second because here we are. (laughs) Hi, hi, hi. Um, People, out there, I'm Anna David, and I'm so excited because I'm here with Christy Coulter. Say hello. hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi, people. Her background looks a little dark, and that's not because she is in Seattle. It's just no. she's a writer, and we don't like to see someone. <laughs> I haven't been outside in 15 years. So. Yeah, no, never. never. I was just never. outside to her. Um, <laughs> she is the author of the hot new memoir, Nothing good can come from this. It's from Ferrar. I don't even know how to say Ferrar Strauss Giraud, which is the most like smarty pants publisher. So we I know, know. <laughs> it really is. Um, and so, so that's how we know that, um, that she's a genius. And I have to say, I'm loving the book, but the cover is amazing. Isn't it the best? Yes. I, so you publish books, you know how hard it is to get the right cover. Yes. So I did my little questionnaire where you say what you want and you don't want. And I was like, no wine paraphernalia. I don't want it to look, I I was afraid to look kind of chiclety. So of course, any good designer is going to be like, oh, hold my, you know, hold my beer, hold my coffee or something. And he came back with this one design that we just loved. I mean, he came up with five. We loved four of them. And that was the one. It was just like everyone I showed it to, we were like, okay, you win. The wine glass is the one. Okay, because let me explain to people who can't see it, anyone listening on the podcast or who can't, who just doesn't, you can't see it. Mm-hmm. It's not just a wine glass. It has measuring mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, sticks. I don't know what you call them. And yeah. I mean, to be able to say that much with an image, to say this is a story about a girl who tried to control her drinking. And we know this because the that has measuring points. Oh, it's so good. A little tick marks. Yeah, the designer is Alex Merto, and um, he's just a genius. Um, he's just Chip Kid, who is like the super rock star of, of cover designers, actually gave it a shout out on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I see this all out. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, and we've got some people here. Hi, Art. Hi, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks, you Hello. guys. For here. And anybody who, um, I always say this, but if you like the people in your life, you should share this with them. If you don't like the people in your life, make sure you don't share this. <laughs> because um, this is going to be really, really good. Uh, not only are we going to talk about Christie's memoir and life, well, it's kind of a book of essays slash memoir. Yeah, yeah. We call them memoir and essays. Memoir in essays. Uh-huh. Uh, fancy. But we're also going to talk so many people want to write their own addiction memoirs. And this is, Christy's path is fascinating and interesting. And so we want your questions and we want you here. So let us get into it. Let me tell you about Christy. She is, I'm going to read the bio just because okay. I screw it up. Um, and of course, I had it right in front of me and now it's gone <laughs> back. 
Um, she has an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan. She's She's got grants and foundation residencies and all of these things. Oh, numerous ones. And she's written for places like the Paris Review, the All, the Long, the Defunct All, which was a great website. Was great. Glamour, Vox, Long Reads. And she had a uh, piece go crazy viral on Medium two years ago. And that sort of sort of tangentially led to her getting this book deal and now we're going to talk about it and so so basically let's call her she was a high bottom drinker yeah yeah this your book really does remind me of previous podcast guest sarah heffala's book yes yes that was an inspiration to me yeah 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 that book was called blackout and it's so great too and it's just like you know i'm gonna be and I mean, this is the greatest compliment. There's nothing particularly fascinating about either of their stories, but the way they are told is so fascinating. So, I mean, it's it's really because people always come to me and say, oh, well, I want to write a book, but my story is not that interesting. And I'm like, my story is not really interesting at all. And I've made it into seven books and thousands of articles. So right. it, it doesn't matter. But I do think the 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 plight of the high bottom drinker is a very, very interesting one. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting too. And actually one thing I loved about Blackout was that Sarah spent so much time on sobriety, not just the drinking. And I was like, this is fascinating. And then I heard her say in some interview that some readers were like, oh, I, I wish she had talked more about her drinking days. And I thought, oh, oh, well, you know, some people want to hear that stuff. But like my story, like hers, was not that fascinating. Uh, addiction is boring. Um, you know, I was privileged, white, employed, settled woman who just drank a lot. So it would have been a lot of me sitting in my living room. Um, like that would be the story. <laughs> so whereas I think sobriety is interesting. So when I finally stopped, I knew that everything I would have to say about the drinking and the sobriety would be pretty interior. You know, a lot of the changes happen inside me. Um, I didn't have, you know, legal issues to deal with or health issues. You know, I certainly could have, but, but I didn't. So that's why I want to focus on just the fact that you don't have to be a textbook like wreck to be a wreck. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting too what you just said because when I wrote my first book, I decided I wanted to make it a novel and not a memoir, something I've regretted ever since. Uh -huh. The reason that I did that is that I, I was reading all these addiction memoirs and they got so boring when the person got sober. And yeah. I thought, you know, I remember reading and not, it was called More Now Again. I don't know if you ever read that one. Yes, I have read that one. And I was like, it was so good when it was all gritty. And so I yeah. thought that there was no way to make recovery interesting unless you made it funny and you were making fun of yourself. And mm -hmm. so Permanent Midnight was the only one that I had. <gasps> That's I, so good. So good. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so and that was a real inspiration to me. So, yeah. so I think that it is, you know, have you ever read Sasha Stablick's My Lush Sobriety? Yes, I read that before I got sober and I yeah. loved it. Yeah. He yeah. does a great job. Of really good. Yeah. Really funny and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. What I theorize is that it is actually much harder for a high bottom drinker to get sober. Would you say that's true? 
Well, without having a point of comparison, I, I think it certainly could be true. And I talk about this in the book a little bit. You know, I came from a, a background where I had a pretty like fancy job, I had plenty of money, and it helped me to get sober in some ways, but it also let me keep lying to myself for a lot longer. Like I didn't have anyone coming to me and kind of forcing the issue because I could hide everything. Um, and there's also not a lot of pity for the high bottom drinker. Um, you know, there's a lot of like, oh God, another white woman just drowning her sorrows. What does she have to worry about? But like human pain is human pain. Um, I don't care who you are. So I, I do, I think, I think I could have gone on like this, like that for years and probably could have just passed as normal as a normal drinker. And I don't know what made me finally say, I just can't anymore. But, um, but yeah, I, I think it's tough. I think it's, you can just get away with a lot more stuff if you're, um, you know, a nice kind of married middle-class white lady. Well, and I think also when somebody's life is a total freaking wreck, mm -hmm. they are desperate at a much earlier point yeah, um, I know when I walked into recovery rooms, I was like, if you tell me I have to strip off my clothes and stand on my head, I will do it because I will do anything but live the way that I've been living because I didn't really right. have anything good going on. Yeah. You had good things going on. You had a good marriage and a good job. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I, I always think that that's really interesting and harder. Like I said, harder. Yeah. I think it's true. I did have a lot, a lot more that I had to kind of maintain, but also, yeah, a lot that was good in my life. It wasn't, um, it took me a long time to even figure out how unhappy I was because I quote, you know, had it all. Right. And, um, and it took year, years longer. I think if I had been younger or really struggling to keep a job or something like that, I would have been forced to be like, oh, what could be causing all these problems? Well, <laughs> maybe it's all the alcohol. Um, instead, I, and with alcohol culture being so much about like fanciness and enjoying, you know, artisanal pleasures and blah, blah, blah. I could also pass that off as like, oh, I'm just drinking these craft cocktails because I appreciate good ingredients. I'm not trying to get drunk. Right. So, and and there is there is a lot of that in the book, the sort of trying to control it, wine tasting and things like that. Yeah. Um, so at what point, you know, and you write a little bit about a, a childhood that was challenging, there was uh -huh. trauma in your childhood. Uh -huh. And is that something that you have uh, done specific work on? Is that something that you worked on before recovery, after recovery? Mostly before. I was in, I think I've been in therapy off and on, well, really since I was six. You know, my parents wanted to understand why I was so anxious. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, maybe because I'm in a really anxious household. But so they took me to therapy and I've been in adult therapy off and on, mostly on since I was probably 30, so 18 years now, mm -hmm. and worked a lot on childhood issues. I was the kind of person who worked in therapy really, really hard and somehow never quite got as far as I could have because I was drinking. Right. And I lied to the therapist, all my therapists about how much I drank, of course. So they couldn't even say, oh, maybe that's the problem. Um, once I quit drinking, therapy became much, much, much more useful because I wasn't undoing everything that I had done. So ah, who knew? <laughs> Go figure. No, it is. It, I have yet to find somebody in recovery who didn't lie to their therapist, who wasn't in therapy lying. I I made the mistake of one day not lying to a psychiatrist and it was actually the worst thing that ever happened. He told me he couldn't see me anymore. He he should be like, he should have oh his medical 
That's terrible. Wouldn't see me anymore and gave me enough Ambien to like kill myself and took me off my antidepressants and now runs oh. the treatment center. So there you oh, go. Nice. But, but yeah, I mean, of course we lied. And of course it didn't. Yeah. Um, and by the way, Lynn, thank you for chiming in with love this combo mm -hmm. on high bottoms. It feels so good when you guys comment. So also mm -hmm. Sarah, thank you for saying hi. And feel free to ask any questions. And, um, and, and by the way, this book, Nothing Good Can Come From You, is on Amazon. It's, it's also in bookstores, I assume. Yeah, it's in bookstores. It's been spotted in airport bookstores even. Oh, that's good. That's I'm told it's a good thing. Um, and it's on Kindle. It's on audiobook. I did the audio recording myself, which was really fun. So basically, any way you want this book, um, aside from like me acting it out, you can have it. And I would do that for you too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, writers will do a lot. I don't yeah. know that Christy wouldn't come to your living room and act it out for you. I will show up and I will just do a little puppet show with my hands. <laughs> um, so, and so you w were in therapy and then, and so how, how has therapy changed since you've been sober? Well, one thing that happened is, so I've had these anxiety and depression issues my whole life, um, and I still do, but within weeks of getting sober, I think my symptoms started to dissipate. Um, I thought I'd been treating them, you know, and it turns out, oh, alcohol is actually a depressant. Yeah. And when, like, just like they say, and when I took away the worry about alcohol, my worries overall kind of started to disappear. So immediately there was this fog that lifted um, like really fast and we were able to talk about normal things. So I kind of stopped, I won't say I never lie to my therapist anymore, but I would say I've mostly started just telling the truth. <laughs> And so it's been much more about just dealing with everyday changes in life, especially the way my life has changed in the past couple of years as a result of, you know, the essay going viral and becoming and kind of having my dreams come true. Um, that's caused stress, like having your dreams come true, it turns out is stressful. And so we've talked a lot about that. Um, don't hate her for saying that. No, uh, <laughs> I Okay, somebody is saying, Sarah is saying, could you post it, please? And I think you mean the link to the book. So I'm putting the link up there. Oh, yeah. From Macmillan. Mm -hmm. and, and so let's talk about this thing going viral. So you were in recovery for how long when you wrote that? I have been in recovery just about three years, just a little over three years. And and how long? So now you have over five years. Yeah, just over five. It was five in the at the end of June. And so you write this piece. You had, mm -hmm. it was your second piece writing about recovery. You posted mm -hmm. on Medium, you sit back, you think it's gonna get 50 claps or whatever the average yeah. gets, and then what happened? It starts, so I posted it, you know, out to my sober networks and it got some pickup there. And then over the next like two or three days, it just, those people sent it to other people and then those people sent it to their friends. It started getting read beyond um, sobriety circles. And then media, someone at Medium, an editor noticed it and she tweeted about it. And that's when I was like, huh, something is happening here. And I think four days later, I was on the BBC. I was on Radio Scotland. <laughs> I was like, what's happening? Um, I was getting, and then the backlash started. Um, there were takedown pieces in Time Magazine. I mean, like my name was in Time Magazine and it was because they did not like me. <laughs> and the New York Post, um, this whole like, and to be in the center of it, I think I got letters from every continent except Antarctica. Wait a minute. Um, 
What was their problem? Why was it controversial? Well, it was a feminist article. So that's generally a problem for people to begin with. Um, and, and my theory was that some women over drink because the pressures of being a woman are unbearable. Um, you have to be great at your career, a perfect mother. You're not allowed to age. You have to be beautiful. You have to keep a perfect house. That it's just gotten harder and harder and harder. Right. And I think some women are just kind of like, well, I'm just going to drink this away. And we kind of make it like it's fashionable for women to drink now, to, to overdrink. So there were some basically like, so this woman is blaming the patriarchy for her drinking problem. And I was like, no, I'm not. First of all, I'm not blaming anyone for it. I had an addiction, but it was more just like, look around at, at the way the alcohol's pushed to women. And then look at what women are having to deal with in their daily lives. And I don't know, I think there's something worth looking at there. But yeah, so there were some fairly defensive like reactions. Um, and and the, the most hostile letters I got were, um, <laughs> exactly, Erica, the most hostile letters I got were from women who, who seemed to think I was pointing at them personally, like, Tammy, put down that margarita. Um, and I was like, Tammy, that's fine. I don't care if you have your margarita. I was just trying to get people to, to think. Meaning strangers who felt judged, uh, like that you were basically saying all women who drink have are alcoholics or something. Yeah. Yeah, any woman who has a glass of wine at the end of the day is is a tool of the patriarchy. I wouldn't want someone saying that about me either, um, which is why I didn't say it about women. And my editor and I even like we we thought, huh, maybe you know, because sometimes there's things in a piece that the writer doesn't intend, and we went back and looked at it, and we were like, nope, nope, this is cool. The other thing is, you know, I write with a voice. My voice is important to me. I, I don't mind being a little edgy. Um, I thought, you know, it's okay. They're talking about the piece. Like, they don't have to like me. That was a very important lesson. Um, yeah. I had to kind of give up my need to be liked because, like, some it made people so mad, some of them. Um, Gala, Ga Galia is saying, what was the title of the article also waiting for your book to come in the mail? It was Anjali. Yeah, it's Anjali. And if you're of a certain age and you grew up in the U.S., you'll remember it was a perfume. I think they still make it. It was a drugstore perfume. And this woman was basically saying she could bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan, <laughs> and never let you forget you're a man. And she goes to three different outfits, like her business suit, her bacon frying outfit, and then her 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 not night not night dress, her evening gown. And and so I was like, oh my God. That's when it all started, this idea that we never get a break. <laughs> and um, so I I sort of uh, I just got obsessed with that ad, which I loved when I was a child. And I thought, that's what it's like now. We're still having to be the Anjali woman. So that's and the name. It's the first essay, a version of that is the first essay in the book as well. Yeah, yeah. We uh, made it a little more personal for the book because the book is a memoir, but it's it's essentially the same one. And please don't take this the wrong way. The book is less angry than I expected it to be. Yeah. Have other people said that? Well, it just... I think maybe a couple of people. I wrote Anjali because my um, agent at the time said, I wonder if in doing the proposal, we should do something that shows anger. And it was like this beautiful day in Seattle in the summer. And I was like, huh, I guess I could try to look, see if I could do that. And I went home and wrote Anjali and clearly I had all this anger inside me. Um, and yeah, the book has a few pieces, especially around like the election and sexual violence where, um, 
you know, my anger comes through, but it's, it's more of a a book that has like, I just me wondering about things. Like I'm the kind of person who has spikes of anger and otherwise just kind of just wandering around trying to figure out what she's doing in the world. Right. Um, and I think that comes through. Um, Whitney is asking, do you still participate in sober communities? Which ones do you notice they are growing? My impression from the book is that you don't regularly attend AA. Right. That's correct. I've been to a couple of AA meetings and I liked them. Um, it wasn't the path I sort of happened to take, although I've been talking with a friend about maybe doing the steps. Um, I really leaned on the online sober communities. I, I went through uh, the tired of thinking about drinking 100 day pledge. That was how I got sober and figured out there was all these other people online um, and they were really awesome. And it was people like me. And I'm still close to a lot of those people. I um, am in like the homies Facebook group, which is for sober women. I'm really close to them. I've seen a lot of those women in real life at this point um, and just have lots of sober friends in Seattle. Finally, it took me forever to find them. Um, so yeah, I've got like my, um, my little my little group of, of people and kind of the other nice thing about becoming known as this and sort of coming out globally as being in recovery is you meet all kinds of sober people. Um, so I feel like almost anywhere in the world I go, I could find someone to talk to. It's interesting because when I when my first book came out, there was nobody out there talking about this. Nobody. Yeah. And being in L.A. and being a chronic confessionalist, I had no idea it was controversial or weird. Right. And and, and now to see that the, the, there was these there's thousands of sober bloggers, there's hundreds mm -hmm. of sober communities. Um, it just blows my mind what's happened. It's when I came out as sober, I had been sober for two years and I just made a Facebook post sort of saying, and I, there were people who knew, but I hadn't ever said anything publicly. And, you know, I had a big job at that time and I thought, oh my God, what am I doing? Is this, are people never going to trust me again? Nothing I feared happened. People right. were nothing but supportive. Everything went fine at work. I mean, it was, it was fine. And I didn't really understand the, the gravity of what I was doing, or I might not have done it. <laughs> you know, I just thought, I want to tell people it's been two years. I feel really good. And it's really the best thing I, I ever did. And it brings so many people to you because then they want to talk. Yeah. And I, I love this idea of like recovering out loud um, when you can, not everybody is in a position to do that. Yes, it's true. I, um, you know, living in LA, I, I realized I was never going to not get a job because I had struggled with drugs. It, I was more likely to get a job for that reason. Yeah, and, yeah. And other people live in communities where they will be discriminated against or penalized, or they come from families where this just is not discussed. And so uh, I do think, you know, I, cause I, I teach writing to, I, and a lot yeah. of students write addiction memoirs and pretty much 95% of them are original conversation. They say, I just can't do this. I, I, and I'm like, you scheduled a call with me. So right. <laughs> you can do this. So you particularly. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk yeah. about your fear around it. And it's mm -hmm. all fear of judgment. And then they always have the opposite experience where they're yep. over, you know, showered with love. Yeah. And you're going to be judged for something anyway. I mean, that's what I always tell people who are afraid of telling this story, especially women. You're a woman. You're going to be judged. <laughs> Choose what you want to be judged for um, and just take the risk. And it can't hurt you. I mean, with Anjali going viral, I had so much love coming at me, but I also was judged so harshly that it actually was like an inoculation. So when this book came out, I worried a lot less about that kind of judgment because I was like, well, you know, I've already had like hate mail from Germany. So <laughs> I, 
I don't know what anyone can do to me anymore. And it's been fine. Did you cry from some of it? Only one time. And it was um it was actually a sober person saying, Well, she's clearly a dry drunk, and I look forward to her relapse essay. And this on Facebook. Even though it's so ridiculous. It was sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And it was a man. And I was in my office at work. And I remember I started to cry. And then I shut down my computer. I canceled my afternoon. There's a big movie theater a block away from my office. I walked in there, bought a ticket, went to the movies without yeah. telling anyone. And that and that got me back. To, it was a Star Trek movie. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> that in space, I believe. And, um, and by the time I left, I was okay. But that was the one that just really... It just hurt that like a, a sober person would actually be that nasty. And of course, now I, I sober people are, they can be as jerky as anyone else, if not more so sometimes. Yeah. Um, but that was the only time. Yeah. Otherwise, I was just kind of like deer in headlights, I think. I remember when I first started reading negative stuff online, I used to talk back and it just would make me be able to sleep. And now um, that's... Yeah. Did, did you comment back or did you do anything that got you more riled up? I rarely did. I was somehow smart enough to just not answer those those letters. And the ones that were outright abusive, because, you know, you do get ones from like the guys who live in their mom's basements, just kind of threatening letters. I actually set up a Gmail filter so that certain words mm -hmm. for women would just immediately get filtered out. And um, I would never see them. So people could be sending me really nasty emails every day. And I just won't know. What, that's what is okay. Oh, you know, like bitch or the C word or, you know, just whore. I, mean, I think I had about 12 or 15 words that I was like, if, a word, if this word is in an email to me, I probably just don't need to see the email. So, yeah. What happens when you're a writer and your piece goes viral? You you were already in conversations with a publisher at that point. Yeah, my agent had become an editor at Farrar Strauss, and so she was considering um, acquiring the book herself. Um, I think it just helped her to really understand. Yeah, there's a market here. Clearly, this can go beyond um, the you know the sober community. So. Probably within a couple of weeks, we had we had made a deal, and I was, um, you know, knowing I had to finish writing the book. So I I kept writing, and the smartest thing I did when the essay went viral was I just never stopped writing because there was the pull to do more of exactly the same. You know, there were people who were like, get another piece out, get another piece out, and I knew that I wanted a long literary career. Um, I didn't want to be just churning out articles one after the, the other. So I just stayed the course, kept doing what I could do best, and um, spent the next year and a half, I think, or a year maybe, um, writing the book, mostly on weekends. I took a sabbatical from my job at the end for three months, and I finished it that way. But um, it became a double life, essentially. You know, I would be working at my job and and people at work were so happy for me and then like getting like i was quoted in the washington post on the me too issue and i was getting an email from bob newhart on the side i mean it was like that was what my life became like <laughs> um and just trying to balance the two um it was it was thrilling there aren't many people you can talk to about that kind of thing because most people don't experience it so well, you just yet you had already <laughs> experienced living a double life Ironically. Yes, I had. I had. That's true. So in some ways I was really 
ready for it. Yeah. The best preparation was being an alcoholic. Exactly. Know? Hiding things and keeping and pretending everything's fine. You know? So Seneca is asking, being on the road to recovery leaves us vulnerable to criticism. Do you have any advice for those of us oh. who are journey as to how to tune out negative Oh, that's a good question. I would say the kind of negative feedback that I expected when I got into recovery was I expected people to say things like, oh, you're not going to be fun anymore, or you weren't really a drunk, or, um, you know, why can't you just have a little bit of wine or something? Now, fortunately, I think because I was a little older when I quit drinking, I was in my early 40s. I realized later that most people around me were not actually drinking as much as I was. <laughs> I just thought they were. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't get a lot of that. Um, if that's the kind of criticism that you mean, I think the most important thing is just to kind of consider the source. Um, remember that it's coming from their own point of view and it has nothing to do with what you know that you need to do. And also that it's change. People don't like it when their friends or relatives change. Um, and so it's they might be uncomfortable for a little while, um, but they'll probably get used to your new normal. And if they don't, then it's one thing if they're a relative. But, you know, there may sometimes be relationships that don't stay with you um, in recovery. I mostly kept mine. But again, I was at a different place in my life than a lot of people. When I hear from people who are like 21 getting sober, I just think my hat is off to them, but I think that's hard, like to have to date sober, being college sober. Um, I, you gotta find your your crowd. Yeah, I will say that the people who, yeah, who are critical, who I, I got sober at 30, and the people who were critical um, usually seem to have alcoholism in their life. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and family, uh, I think there is a thing, it, uh, oh my God, I gave birth to this. So mm. there is a level of denial. And the other thing is, I do find with recovery, since it is so different than we all think it's going to be, mm -hmm. it's really impossible to get someone who's not in it to understand. And so I just gave up trying to explain, oh, it's not what yeah. you think it is. Oh, I don't go to meetings and talk about wanting to drink. I go and I talk about my crazy head or whatever it is. Right. I just stop trying to explain it to them. Because they don't, it's true, they don't, people can't really get it. I didn't get it until I was in it. I had no idea what it was going to be like. I thought it was going to be so much harder. <laughs> well, I thought I was never going to have fun again. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought the rest of my life would be like an endurance contest. Um, I really did not understand that it was going to be okay. Um, so, yeah, I don't blame people for being very well-meaning. People can be like, oh, my God, how are you going to do it? Because they don't understand that once you get past that that little hump, you know, you've got to build your muscles, that your life changes and your brain, you know, your brain changes and you want different things. Yeah. It just doesn't happen right away, you know. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how low your bottom is. Like mine happened yeah. right away because I was just had been so miserable. But then, you know, it's not, you know, recovery yeah. is definitely it's an up and down. Yeah. 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 Um, well, okay. But I still want to go back to, again, for aspiring authors, how did you already have an agent? You already had an MFA and you were already getting published, but still, how did that happen? Well, I had a really weird path. So I got my MFA at 24. I went straight from undergrad to grad school. And I was going to be famous by the time I was 30. And when that didn't happen, <laughs> um, I kind of get, you know, I was like, oh, fine. I kind of gave up and I went and got regular jobs. And, um, and I actually took 12 years off of writing. I, I mean, I wrote for work 
and I read a lot and I always read like a writer, but I really didn't write for, for 12 years. And when I got back to it, I started blogging and, um, and then realized, oh, I still have this itch. I still want to write. And I happened to have an agent because a woman I had worked with, um, at, at Amazon, where we both, I worked for 12 years, had left and become an agent. And she said, oh, I really see something here. Um, Kent, do you wanna work together? And I was like, really, you see something here? I, I didn't quite buy it. And I was like, yeah, I guess, sure. So that's that's kind of how I had the agent. I had some connections from you know being, working at like the world's largest bookstore <laughs> and from my my old days in, um, in the literary world. And I had also worked in publishing a little bit. Um, and that and that all all helped just to have some like vague connections out there. But for all aspirants, you don't actually need them. But no, um, you do yeah, not. The three people in my coaching program who sold their books had no connections. But it, yeah, I remember I had an agent I had been talking to, mm -hmm. and he had um, he was such a douchebag. I'm so yeah. sorry. I remember. <laughs> finished my book and I told him it was maybe September okay. and for years. And he said, yeah, give it to me. And if I don't get to it by the end of the year, I will get to it in um, early next year. Oh, and I wrote back and I said, are you okay with me submitting it to other agents? And he said, no, I'm not. And so then uh, I had like Cinderella beginning where I had two agents read stuff of mine online and ask me if they, yeah. if I want a representation. And I just don't, I don't know that that happens anymore. I had thousands of magazine stories and, yeah. and that's why I had a similar with Anjali I had I had numerous agents suddenly you know in my inbox and do you want and editors and it really was the Cinderella thing and I knew enough to be like I know this doesn't happen this is really really lucky but yeah I also know that you don't necessarily need it I mean I kind of did this first book without an agent because my agent had become my editor and yeah. And I didn't, you know, and, and we just thought, well, and I knew my, my way around the contract and, and I have a wonderful agent now, but, um, but yeah. And the other thing is you can have all the connections in the world. If your work is not good, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, there's always like the exception that proves the rule, but, um, but it's, it's all about the work and, and the, the people with connections spend just as many hours staring into space, chewing their fingernails, thinking they suck as the people without them. You know, that's kind of what it comes down to. If you're not writing for the love of it, then you're probably wasting your time. It's yeah. not how you get rich. It's not really how you get famous. No. The work doesn't get any easier. <laughs> you know? It gets harder, I think. So, but did working at Amazon, do you know like, you know, algorithm stuff that helps you? A little bit. Like I, I knew the very, very basics. I never worked so much on that side of it, but you know, I know that it's, kind of common sense stuff. Like if you have a lot of customer reviews, that's better than not having many. If right. you have at least a three star average in your reviews, that's better because Amazon wants to surface the books that they think people will want to see. So so really just kind of the stuff anyone can sort of figure out. If there's something wrong with my page, I probably have a little bit, like it's easier for me to be like, who can I email directly to ask about this <laughs> rather than going through some kind of queue or something. Um, but I worked mostly in other like weird parts of Amazon, like in Amazon Go and things like that, less around like the the, the bookstore. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't help me that much. And what's it like having the book out now? It's so weird. <laughs> um, I have waited for it for so long. I've wanted to do this since I was four. I didn't want to become an alcoholic since I was four, but <laughs> I dreamed of it um, so I could write a book. Uh, you know, publishing is so slow. 
especially working at Amazon and in tech where things move really, really fast, publishing seemed even slower to me. So I finished the book a year and a, you know, a year ago and change. And you just wait, you know, you know, it's like you look at copy edits and all that stuff, and then you just wait. And it's like everything's changed and nothing's changed. We had this huge launch in Seattle, like tons more people than we expected showed up and were amazing. And people seem to be reading the book. You know, I get letters from people every day and people on Instagram and um, it's reviews have been wonderful. But, you know, my day to day life is still just like I'm working on a second book. And I get up and I try to work on that. And often it does not go well <laughs> because that's writing. And um, and so in some ways, nothing's changed. Um, but to have it connecting with readers and in the way that I wanted it to has been really huge. And to hear to have readers from beyond the sober community, because it's not it's about getting sober, but it's really about having to figure out who you are at an age when you thought you knew. Um, and I think that's something that anyone can relate to. Right. <laughs> Daddy was at my launch. <laughs> um, yeah. And so the, uh, I always, um, book launches are so different than, mm -hmm. book. Uh, you know, jo Joel Stein had this great thing he tweeted once where he said, yeah, having a book out, it's just like having a movie come out, but nobody cares. Yes. But that's <laughs> at our but it but it is like this is I poured this I wanted this since I was four and right. um and then there's like this sort of deafening silence the thing is there isn't we all get attention but it never feels like enough if you're in a right it, it's like my friend Claire Dieterer said it's the calm before the calm <laughs> you know that's amazing and like with the movie there's this thing where it's like oh the first weekend grosses whereas you know with books it's kind of like I mean I have no idea I've actually I'm not checking like Amazon oh the other thing about Amazon is I know those sales rankings like they're totally legit but they're based on all kinds of things that I don't even understand I know they can drive you crazy so I'm not looking at that I have yeah. no idea how many copies have been sold. I'm like, at some point, somebody will say something or yeah. I'll earn out the advance or I won't or, you know. Um, so I'm really just trying to be calm about it myself. But yeah, you do get the sense of where's my band? Where's my brass band? Where's like the, the sash on my card that says author? You don't get those things. <laughs> it's sad to say. And then everybody comes to you and goes, how's the book doing? Okay. I know. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> right. um, like, I, people seem to like it, but I, but I don't know. I know I had pre-orders, which is unusual for debut authors. My editor was like, that doesn't happen that for people who are unknown, virtually unknown to have pre-orders. So I was like, well, that's good. But then I can take any piece of good news like that and spin it into like, well, maybe those are the only people who are ever going to buy it. Yeah. Pre-orders and no orders. I mean, she's just, she's like, you're killing me because I can, I can always spin good news into bad. That's one of my, that's one of my big talents. <laughs> oh, of course. And then like, good news to me and I'll spin it for you. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, the mind twist is, mm -hmm. you know, and if you're a great storyteller, forget it. Cause you can convince yourself and everyone else that it's a bad story. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, book tours aren't a, a lot of people have been like, so are you going on a big tour? And, you know, tours, I know this from working in publishing, they don't really sell books for yeah. most of us, especially in this day and age when people can just go get your book on Amazon or on Kindle or something like that. So, you know, it's more like you do targeted events. So there's not that like, I'm going on a grand tour of the country, which is honestly fine with me. Like, I don't want to spend the next two months in airports. Um, yeah. 
you know, but I am going out to New York and then to L and then I'll be in LA mm. and I am, it is going to be fun to get to meet some readers in person. That was the best thing about the launch is meeting people in person. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that there is this, yeah, that people think a book party is a big, you mm -hmm. know, and it, and it's, it's super fun, but yeah. It, and I think what people will do, like at least in LA, what we'll do is we'll have a party at book soup mm -hmm. and try to sell a hundred copies. Yeah. Your chances of making the, the LA times list are better, but that's horrible because your lovely friends show <laughs> up. You're so grateful. And then yeah. you're like, did they buy the book? Did they buy the book? <laughs> right. And it's awful. <laughs> Right, right. Well, I've also been told somebody was like, don't do an event in LA because nobody will, people don't want to leave their neighborhoods because it'll take them four hours to get to books, you know, yeah. which sounds a little bit like that too. But, um, but yeah, people don't necessarily want to come spend their weeknight, like watching you stand at a lectern. Go figure. Um. Oh, I know. It's like Ryan Holiday is one of my favorite writers was mm -hmm. in book soup and I'm like I'm dying to meet him night of no yeah can't do it it's gonna take me take me two hours to get there yeah 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 well okay so we gotta wrap up this has been amazing for anybody it sounds like a lot of people watching and listening have ordered the book but for anybody <laughs> nothing good can come from this it's on Amazon it's at Hudson booksellers which is in airports which I is know um that's and Christy, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I've wanted, I was telling people that when I first got sober, your podcast was a huge comfort to me because I didn't want to have to become this very earnest, like no fun person. And I was like, oh, she seems like me. So if she can do this, I could do this too. So, so it's actually a big dream to come on. Oh my God. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, when I was editing at the fix, I was like, the one rule is no pictures of people going like arms right because I can't <laughs> and um yeah. yeah and and I think that if we weren't having fun we wouldn't still be doing this no there'd be no point I mean it's not about suffering or being just so you can be like I'm sober it's about like having the life that you actually want which I didn't understand that when I made the leap but I but I get it now yes yeah. well again Christy thank you so much you guys go get thank the book thank you for showing up thank um, you everyone this was a delight. Uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.